Welcome to First Aid Copites, a podcast for Delaware's Liverpool supporters and their friends. It's January 23rd. Welcome to an extra exciting show. Now, we decided it was absolutely necessary after the Reds went to a windswept south coast of England and beat a very dangerous Bournemouth team four goals to nil. I'm Paul, and I'm joined by Daz and Justin tonight. Uh, we'll dissect the Bournemouth game in part one. Uh, part two, we'll look at some wider issues in the game, probably talk about refereeing, maybe a bit about ownership. Uh, and then we'll finish off looking ahead at a big two weeks uh, for the Reds uh, with a couple of cup games. Uh, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have a passing word about Fulham, which is being played tomorrow. And if you're listening to this, you may well have already experienced what happened in the Fulham second leg. So let's let's get started in part one. Um, we, we started to chat about this uh, before we recorded. Um, obviously, Bournemouth nil, Liverpool four. The, the XG, depending on your model, Opta had it at uh, 1.39 for Bournemouth, 1.55 for Liverpool, which does not suggest a 4-0 game. Um, but I think there were some really positive things from Liverpool, which actually make that XG a bit of a nonsense. Um, but we'll get to that. Um, let's start with the first half. Daz, uh, the National Pundits, I've got a few different podcasts I listened to, just talked mainly about the fact there were no shots inside the penalty area. And like it was, you know, like 1999 since the last time that happened. It's much closer, but, you know, who cares? Uh, I actually left the first half thinking, this is a really clever tactical battle. You know, Ariel has got a plan uh, and you know, we're, we're just trying to figure our way around it. But maybe I just lack insight. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts about the first half? I think we were largely feeling our way back into things. Like we've got a fairly significant number of people that are either away or injured. Um, <laughs> the, I think he, based on based on what he had available and, and who he trusts, I think he made the right decision and who he put on the pitch. Look, just my 30,000-foot view, as I saw above all, was that I wasn't really all that upset with it. I don't think we played particularly well. And I think that um, it's probably Neil Atkinson was was referencing this as well when he talked about like how the pundits were like absolutely choking on the fact that 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 Bournemouth brought it to us in the first five minutes and they had like a, a spate of, of corners and we couldn't seem to get out. And everyone was like, oh, my God, this is this is exactly what you need to, to, to beat Liverpool. It's high-intensity. And I, and I was like, uh, whatever. Even if we go a goal down, I'm 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 still convinced that we'll, we'll win this game simply based on on what we've done throughout the balance of the the course of this of the season so far. So to answer your question in a, in a much broader sense, I wasn't really all that upset with it. I know that in our group chat, our mythical group chat, I was like, we look kind of shite. But I I did I did caveat that by saying is like it'll change at halftime. Uh, Klopp will have seen what he needs to see. As as long as we we can we can make this uh, get through this turgid first half, and kind of weather whatever Bournemouth are throwing at us, which we did, and and again it's like in the cold light of day they they really struggled to, to lay a glove on us. So mm-hmm. um, again, it's like, pundits are going to pundits. They've 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 got their their touching points. They've got their agenda points, and it's always going to be Liverpool struggle. Other team does well. Could have gone either way. And by and large, it's all bullshit. But that's that's what they that's what they're getting paid for. So I, I I'm usually like you know me. I'm my my bellwether is usually on the on the usually curves towards being cynical or, or jaded or even upset. But I really wasn't all that upset for this for the first half, honestly. 
Oh, so so uh, usually I tune you guys out for the first half of most of these games because <laughs> what usually happens is just like oh this is shit we're terrible oh no and um, and I think one of the parts of that was uh like it was point four six the xG um I uh, sure Rogers said up to the 89th minute so what of the padding of the Bournemouth numbers was about things that happened when it was three and probably four nil um uh, so I'll go to you Justin but uh that's you the word weather the storm uh, it, there was a bit of a storm going on as well which I, I, I you know Klopp is not allowed to mention that obviously anymore because it's ridiculous to talk about the weather but I have heard this week people say they're the hardest conditions to play in with like a swirling wind uh and and given that I actually thought that the level of the game was was quite high yeah my take on it and I'm gonna have a very similar kind of take for the second half my take on the first half is we have Virgil van Dyke and you don't. Yeah. Yes. That's the really fully it. Good Virgil van Dyke too. The fully functional operational Virgil mm-hmm. van Dyke. Yeah. And like van Dyke wasn't the only guy who was good in a defensive capacity or a pressure relieving capacity. Cause like Ibu was fantastic. And uh, there's not enough positive things that one can say about Alessis McAllister in the first half, just like, Constantly took the ball out of pressure, constantly uh, tackled, constantly just broke everything up, made a, you know, got us going forward. This is the type of thing where it's just like we had a first half where we couldn't, you know, find our range. But still, in reality, was like we have Virgil Van Dyke and Allison Becker. I missed Allison, and they and you don't right. Like even yeah. if you get a little bit of uh, superiority, and to be perfectly honest, if you're if you're counting five minutes for a team that's home with a team that hasn't that hasn't played in eleven games as superiority, I think you're really just trying too hard to make uh, the Liverpool are fortunate narrative happen. Yeah, well, there's definitely a bit of that. Just dwelling on Verge um, uh, does. I mean, there's plenty of players to talk about, and I do want to talk more about Alexis McAllister. Um, but uh, Lasso is such a moron of like this other words you could call him, and I may get to that with a few more beers. But uh, like he he refused to say that Van Dyke was good. He kept talking about like he used his experience. It's like is this damning with faint praise because he used the expression three four times in in the game when yeah uh, to your point Virgil was uh excellent and th- there wasn't even many moments where there was like a recovery required he'd kind of sussed it out before the the moment where he might have to throw in a recovery tackle even appeared uh, I thought he was, was particularly excellent and um his partnership with Konate uh I, th- I think is well touch wood about Konate's fitness but I, I I can't see anyone in the Premier League who kind of matches up to them. Can you? I think that enough hasn't been said about Cunatino's passing range in that game. I think someone tweeted something to the effect of like he had the most number of of, of progressive balls that resulted in, in chances in the game. And I was I was took especially considering you bringing back the swirling wind, just how well he was knocking the ball around. Yeah, because um, in the past. And this is a, and a lot of people have made mention of this. Is like they're more than willing to let him have the ball, and I, I think there's been a couple of times that he's given it away cheaply, and it has turned into a chance going the other way. And that I think that was primarily last season when we were roundly shite anyway. So we just chalk it up to one of them. But he was he was magnificent on the ball. He was great off the ball. Some great tackles. 
Um, Virgil gave him a, some some big love when he made that that challenge inside the eighteen yard box. He's just he's 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 becoming way more of a well rounded and accomplished uh, central defender. Like the one thing that's going to plague him is 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 his injuries. And growing up, I don't I don't remember many centre backs taking like this significant like at least, at least Liverpool full centre backs because. A lot of the championship-winning teams were uh, champion teams were, were based on the mama and the papa in the middle and the back, and they were like stalwarts. You'd see them week in and week out. They were hardly ever injured. So it, it's a function of the, of the game. I know it's like we're, we're, we, it's a different game nowadays, but that it's it's good to see Ibu put like a a good body of evidence together to to suggest that he is one of the best center backs in the league, potentially the world. And again, it's always going to be understated because these. The pundits, our favorite pundits, cannot seem to get the, the Arsenal central defenders' names out of their mouths as yeah. somehow as as transcendent footballers. And and I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from them, but I think that you you need to to be able to lobby the praise where it's where it's where it's deserved, and they just won't like to your point, like all these backhanded compliments or faint praise. That, that that's just it's 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 gotten to the point where it's it's disingenuous. And I, I just I yawn at it now. I'm like, oh, okay, it's more of the same. Like anyone with eyes can tell you that that that's watched any number, a significant number of minutes with any of these central defenders. That like Virgil Van Dijk is the the rumors of his demise were were greatly exaggerated. So long may it continue. Like it's my, my wife watches him play, and she's like, he just doesn't look like he's trying all that hard, does he? And I'm like, no, because he's right. fucking that good. Well, hopefully he isn't trying that hard and uh, he can play all the minutes that we need him to. Yeah, um, 50, yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, Justin, you, you um, shared a couple of stats about uh, Diogo Jota. Um, I mean, he's just ridiculous. Uh, well, like, that was going to be my my story of the second half is that we have Diogo Jota and you do. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm well, in, I'm well into the second half now. We, we can yeah, go with... We have Diogo Jota and you don't. I mean, look, I, I know that... Um, I occasionally can possibly be accused of doing of doing Diogo Jota um, agitprop, uh, but I, I love him. But like, what you have to get used to, and what you have to realize with Jota is that like, people have certain aesthetic requirements of attackers, yeah. and if you have certain aesthetic requirements of attackers, Diogo Jota is not going to satisfy them because like it looks awkward. He's not the fastest guy. He's not the quickest guy. Um, it often looks like he's just kind of like a bit herky jerky, but on the other hand, um, he shoots the ball at corners every single time quickly. He gets it on target before anybody's ever set and the ball goes in. Like uh, he's the best finisher at the club. Yeah. Probably the best. I mean, he's the best finisher of the Klopp era. If you look, if, if you adjust for sample size, cause, um, the only guy who has more who has who has a higher finishing rate is a guy who hasn't played as much and didn't score as many goals, and that's uh Lord Divoc. Right. But um yeah, Jota finds the net with more regularity as far as the amount of sh- the amount of shots he needs to score than anyone. Like he look at both of his goals. Both of those goals are smashed finishes at the near post in the corner. You have to be pretty fucking good to do that yeah and the assist for darwin's goal is a perfectly weighted ball that like looks like he's actually gonna underpass it 
Um, I think that the thing that we found was in the, fir- in the first half, we were trying to play, I think, a bit too spread through our three forwards. And the halftime adjustment, part of it was putting Darwin up the middle, which helped. Mm-hmm. But part of it was just playing through Jota, like using him as the creative hub, because he's the one who's most likely to do things that's going to put the, that are going to put the ball in the back of the net. Darwin, you know, deserves a lot of praise, but on the other hand, you know, he's not as likely to, um, to create output as Jada. No. Well, Both are very good. To your Both point, fantastic. The, the XG on the Jota goals um, was really, really low. In fact, Bournemouth had three chances. Apparently, they had better XG on them than, than his two shots. Uh, and the, the, the Nunez chances were both big chances. Um, so, did they give Bradley the assist for his? Did they give Bradley the assist for his? For his they did. I was pretty yeah. sure they were going to give it to Jota. <laughs> but favorite part of that was like the way in the background. And as soon as they, they didn't even get the whole way through, and he smashed it in the bottom corner. <laughs> Take that, you fucking pole bags. Right, right. Some guys are just predatory. Jota's just predatory. I I watched it back, as I told you, and they did not get through that jeer before the ball was in the back of the net. It was very, very good. Um, My son called me. He's on the third floor, and he said, Dad, I heard you're on the third floor. (laughs) So so I do want to bring up one thing with Jota and XG, because this is the part, this is the thing that's going to, um, where I think that people might go a little too far into stats mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sometimes actually doesn't matter if you have a guy who's going to consistently score from opportunities that other people don't. That's really what you want. Like yeah. one of the debates that Sean and I have ad nauseum, and I think we're all kind of sick of it, self included, but I'll still indulge it. Is uh. Is it better to have a player who creates chances that nobody else has? Or is it better to just have the player who finishes chances that like, you know, half chances that are out of nothing. I'm going to take the player who finishes the half chance out of nothing. Like every time. See, so I, I, I think, you know, both of those things, if you've got Nunez and Jota, uh, cause, cause like Nunez's touches inside the box, is like, it's top, it's number one in, 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 in the premier league. Um, and no, it's. I think the second person is Gabriel Jesus, and it's not not even close. And you've got this guy who can score those goals. That's. I. I, I think having both is is. You can't have your cake and eat it in this situation. I think. So I am stealing this from uh, ESPN's Ryan O'Hanlon, but basically, he has an art. He wrote an article that's out today in ESPN um, that Darwin Nunez is one of the best footballers in the world. He is also terrible at kicking a football. Okay. And like, I get it. I I completely get it. This particular, that particular assessment of Darwin makes sense. He can't kick a ball for shit, but things happen. Well, that's part of your aesthetics versus, versus. Yeah. Argument I, don't care. I don't care that much about the aesthetics. Yeah. No, where I care about the aesthetics is the player is a player in midfield. Like I like seeing Curtis Jones and Alexis McAllister and Dominic Sabazlai be able to carry the ball and dribble. With my forwards, just give me blunt force trauma. Yeah. So GBH forwards. Nunez Nunez does have a shot on him though. Um yes. you know, so uh, uh, you know, I, I realize that's kind of very poetical for the journalist to kind of write it that way. But uh, I, I have sensed a shift over this weekend, actually. Maybe we'll talk about this. Um, 
now that he's got 10 assists and 10 goals in all competitions this season um, and two pretty well-taken goals. Uh, and he, I thought he was really unlucky against Newcastle and Fulham. I know it, it wasn't wasn't hit. That wasn't bad finishing. That was just goalie gets lucky in at least one of those situations. But Luton weekend, too, the game against Luton as well. All right, yeah. I, I I am going to stand for one thing though. When it routinely happens with the same player over an extended period of time, notably his entire career, it is bad finishing. Uh, well, not his entire career, right? Because he had that right, one, he had one season, in season of Benfica. And I, I guess what I'd say is this weekend, I felt there was a slight shift in the national narrative and instead of like, you know, kind of, oh, let's joke about Nunez. Some people started to say, Jesus, I wouldn't like to defend him, even if he's not scoring, right? Because he, he kind of makes it very difficult for everyone around him and makes it much easier for other people, Diogo Jota, to pop up and score wonderful goals. Yeah, I mean, you play, try playing against a completely batshit insane, faster than you, bigger than you, stronger than you, and did I mention batshit insane player? Like, good luck. Yeah, I think the I honestly think the chaos thing is overdone. Um, I think he, I mean he's a really skillful footballer. I wouldn't go as far as to say he's one of the. What, what I, I don't know how good he is actually. I don't know how good he is, but he's he's way better than the stupid narrative, which is still somehow suggesting that, well, I don't know. I don't know whether it'll make it because that still was out there at least a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, I think he's already kind of made it. I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the jury is not, is the jury is like done and dusted on this guy as, as, a, as a good footballer who probably could score more goals. If he could figure a few things out. Yeah. I mean, he's going to make more money in the next year than I'll make in the next decade. So <laughs> you figure that one out. Yeah, it did. It it did feel though this weekend something changed. Um. Anyway, we've uh, one thing we didn't say about Jota, which I, I I couldn't find the other data on this, but uh, one of the stats that you shared with us, uh, uh Justin, was uh, his nineteen point three percent shot conversion. That is like in a that's an elite finisher. Um, like I, I don't think Liverpool, have Liverpool ever had anyone who finishes their shots at that rate. Yes, yeah, so yeah. like Gibakarigi, just slightly Gibakarigi oh, with the small sample, smaller sample size. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so, Diogo's the best, That he also has the best song. So <laughs> he does. Although we could really do with Firmino returning as a guest appearance because that's not a bad song, and I wouldn't mind Genie showing up from time to time. Can we can we give a can we give a special mention to uh to two guys who really deserve it? Uh Joel Gomez. <laughs> it's gonna happen. Just it's gonna happen. Just be close to a friend so you can give them a hug when it does. And the energizer bunny. Um uh, look, someone he he's a really really promising young footballer, but someone's got to get that kid like you know a proper haircut because it's bad. Well, he's not coming <laughs> to me. And the friend that I have next to me when Joe Gomez is going to be holding my clothes as I streak. Uh, yeah, who's who's got a bad haircut? Connor Bradley. Uh, okay, it's a bowl cut, man. It's a bowl. He's a great. He looks he looks like a he looks like he's going to be a perfectly fine footballer. I'm uh, I'm a, but. Yeah, it's a bowl cut. 
it felt like they all have the haircut, don't they? Like, doesn't Bobby Clark and Owen Beck have the same haircuts? Yeah, yeah, I think Ben Doak does too. It's just, I guess, you know, people got to stop idolizing Thomas Shelby. So one, one, one thing I would say is um, Bradley, 5'11". Mm, didn't realize that. Um, that that definitely probably puts him in on the plus column in uh, in Klopp's world. Well, yeah, I mean, he should have used that height better at the back post. <laughs> it should have gone in. <laughs> well, there was there, that. The one there's a chance. There's a chance when we get Simicus back that Trent's acceleration into midfield could be hastened by the emergence of Connor Bradley and the ability to have Joe Gomez cover it right back to. Who do yeah. you drop then? What's your starting midfield for, for big matches? Let's put it that way. Probably playing Trent at right back. Still. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go with that. Before we're done, Alexis McAllister, um, John Gibbons said, uh, probably on national television like this, that it was like he was playing FIFA on easy mode and everyone else was set at the most difficult uh, he had he won fourteen jewels and fifteen recoveries. These numbers maybe uh, like one or two off because I've seen different numbers given. He played eleven passes into the final third. Um, that was quite a performance. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I'd make this comparison. It, it felt like this season, Sobosly has arrived like John Barnes. It feels like McAllister may have arrived like Peter Beardsley, where he didn't set the world on fire for the first ten games, but by the time that season was over, Beardsley was was up there with Barnes in terms of contributions to the team. Uh, felt like that was a big game for him from a uh, from just showing what he can do in this team. I think we all knew he was a great footballer. Yeah, and you know what it is too? It's also like we still really haven't gotten to see him do an extended run at a position that still suits him better because in, in the stark light of day, I would still feel more comfortable with my thought of like what Liverpool's best midfield is. It still contains Wataru Endo at the six. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good situation to be in. We have multiple guys that I would play at both eights. Like I could use, you could use McAllister or Jones at the left side at eight. You can use Gravenberg, um, Harvey Elliott or Dominic Sabazlai at the right side at eight. And you know what? You can use Wataru Endo or Alexis McAllister at the six. And each, and there gives, there's a lot of different combinations that give you legs, balance, and creativity in the midfield. A thing that we haven't had in, I don't know, since probably like, you know, this isn't to try to take shots at Ginny, Henderson, or Fabinho, but like you wouldn't call any of the three of them except for Henderson occasionally like creative fulcrums like to go back to like when we had a real creative fulcrum in midfield you have to go back to jared and alonzo yeah mm. maybe a little bit of tiago here and there but like it's it's not been a hallmark of a clop midfield um for that to be for that to be the case yeah yeah i, I mean i think well several directions to go in here we'll talk later about uh, Arsenal, uh, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, I think that formation, when he has almost everybody available, fingers crossed, um, will tell us a lot about kind of how, how it's going to fit. Maybe Endo, Endo will be back, right, if Japan get knocked out. And they're doing their best to try and get knocked out at this point. Yeah. Because yeah. um, I, I kind of think there's only a couple of games a year where 
you're like, we absolutely need a really solid midfield, you know, against City or 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 maybe Arsenal. Um, I think for most games, I think McAllister in the six, in the way he played that game, uh, where there's not too much space for him to cover, is perfectly fine. Agreed. Yeah. Good. Um, going to end the section. And anything else to say on Bournemouth? That's oh, well, not Bournemouth particularly, but the game against Bournemouth. No, I think it was. Um, I always, I often, not always, I often talk about a tale of two halves, and I think this has been a season of two halves. Um, I think you mentioned later on in the statistics about the number of goals that we score in the first half versus yeah. the second half, and even the latter stages of the second half. Um, I, I think that it's it's fantastic that we have the best iterations of our the spine of our team, specifically in central defence and goalkeeping. Because as long as we're in with a sniff with 35, 40, 40 to go, um, I think that we can go toe-to-toe with, with pretty much any team, at, at the very least in this league and potentially a, 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 on the entirety of this planet. Yeah, I, I think that we're still... Well, after this weekend, there may be people who are going like, oh, maybe we underestimated them. But I think generally there's an underestimation because I keep hearing people going back to, well, City going to run this time time of year. As if we've never done that, right? Because I think we've been on a few runs ourselves. Well, I think it's recency bias too. Like we had a, we had a, 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 a to be nice using a uh, lissoism. Uh, we had a pied season last year, and that always sticks most most closely in, in people's heads as <laughs> as how bad you or good you were recently. And yeah. I've fallen, I've fallen victim to this like this season because. We we really tempered our expectations with a brand new team, a whole bunch of like pop 2.0, new players coming in, betting them in. And we said at the beginning of the season when we like we got it, we got some wins and we're like, well, this is actually we could actually do something here. It was it's like the expectations did shift because of the recency of how good we actually were. But and we also said it's like, look, it's gonna take them the better part of half a season to get to to start developing a rhythm or start developing chemistry, more importantly. And I think we've we've been born out to be right so far. Yeah, last yeah. ten games. I think we've had uh, our xG against has been 0.87, I think I read. Uh, so which is the former teams that win the league. Go ahead, yeah. Justin. There's one other thing. A few weeks ago, we said we're top of the league or thereabouts, but we don't know how good we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we know how good we are now. Mm-hmm. I think we're a bit better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think the most, I mean, we'll end, end part one here, but I think the most wonderful thing from my perspective was, you know, we could have spent a long time talking about the Diaz challenge, the challenge on Diaz and the Jota penalty. And maybe we'll mention the Diaz challenge in, in part two. But we made the referee not matter. No. I mean, I don't think you call a game, you know, particularly in our favor wasn't a teeny levels but um we made it not matter which feels huge let's end part one there and uh, we'll be back in part two talk about an array of topics Um, might touch on officiating bit about ownership um because i feel like that's a topic that people might might have read a lot about and i feel like they've been you know, people have been trying to brainwash people into thinking that that somehow the 
uh, sustainability, profit and sustainability rules are a drag on teams development. Uh, I have a different view. Interested to hear from you two. And then we'll just touch on AFCON. And obviously a big part of AFCON is uh, the Mosala injury, which uh, I think we know a little bit more about, but I don't know that we know the full story. Um, but let's start with, uh, I I feel like we, we've done a few memes around this, but uh, the absence of forensics on decisions that have gone against us is just bizarre. Uh, you know, I, I think we can debate what this is. I don't, I don't think any of us think it's a conspiracy, but um, it looks like a lot of bias involved on certain people's hearts. Uh, there may be some incompetence too, but I think it mostly feels like bias. Um, let's start with Exhibit A. Uh, Odegaard handball, oh, not given handball uh, against uh, for Arsenal against us uh, at Anfield. Um, and we could say, you know, if, we, if we'd got a penalty and we'd have scored it, you know, would it have made a difference because we scored shortly afterwards? But you know, I think the principle is how long does it take to dismiss a VAR call around something that might favour Liverpool? Well, here we go. Um, Chris Cavanaugh was the referee. He initially said he'd not given a penalty because Odegaard's hand was on the floor. Having watched replays of the incident, Coot told assistant VAR Lee Betts, for me, Lee, he's falling down. He's moving his arm towards him. So it's check complete for me. Betts says, the assistant, yeah, from the brief look I've seen, yeah, agreed, yeah, yeah. Coot, check complete, confirming on-field decision, no penalty. I, I, I That was how many seconds? <laughs> and who was seriously looking at that? My feeling on it was at the time, which a feeling that remains, which is I watch a lot of basketball, as everybody knows. Um, I my, my I have a team that has a left-handed point guard, Jalen Brunson, and it yeah. looked like him dribbling. Well, I'll go, I, so, so you talk about like how the lack of forensics there. What was the difference in time between the Jarrell Kwanzaa um, uh, incident and the Crystal Palace game between the time that the incident happened and the time that it was given? It was probably about a minute and a half, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's that one. Then the Tiani check, which I'm sure we're going to come up to check to take to look at now on the the challenge on Diaz, was less than thirty. It was less than fifteen seconds. Because the, I remember the commentator had barely gotten out of his mouth before he said, "Oh, the check's been complete. Nothing, nothing doing that." It's so again. Yeah. You can bend. You can bend VAR however you want, and that's where the the, the, the inconsistency slash bias comes in. It's like if give it give it another second. You don't even have to. You don't even have to 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 to, to whistle play dead. You you've seen it. You they they finished a game and brought it back afterwards for Christ's sake. So you have you have leeway. So, but to, to to check something that that briefly when it's potentially when it's potentially match changing because because if 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 he sent what well, one minute that happened in 27, 28 minute I remember being fairly early the Diaz uh, yeah. Foul Diaz yeah 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 so that that changes the complete complexion of that game and it's okay. the same as the Odegaard thing so like I've seen people's like well we scored right afterwards it doesn't matter goals change games it's it's such a yeah. it's such a, a, a a ridiculous thing to, to say it it's so trite but it does it's not only changes the scoreline it changes the mentality it changes the tactical the tactical makeup of how it it can change the it can affect the the, the overall the overall mental well-being of a team goals absolutely impact games if that goes in we could go on to beat them 3-1 yeah because it's it, it just deflates the end so it's to, it, to, to, to miss something like that potentially pivotal over over a, a complete lack of use of look, 
this is my thing. I thought about this today. I'm, I'm, what I'm most pissed off about is, is it's like people that have a Ferrari and, and you're treating it like a mini, like an old mini Cooper. You're refusing to use like the, the full, the, the, the full power that it, that it, that it has at your disposal. And it's, and they're dumbing it down on purpose to, to, to like, as Dean said, I don't want to hurt my mate's feelings and make him look like a, like a cunt on television. We didn't use those words, but that's what I, that's what I heard. And it's, it, it just, paraphrase that I'll allow. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think some serious conversation here to be had. I mean, I think Liverpool don't need to write any more letters to PGMOL unless they're calling out Hoot, um, Tierney, and uh, Brooks is a bit of a problem as well, just based on kind of some of, some of the stuff. And, and the weird thing is, this is not like the two guys who screwed up the Tottenham game, right? Hooper and, uh, and Darren England. Like, we don't have Darren England games and his record like in terms of the big chance stuff that Paul Tompkins does is is way better than any of the three people I mentioned if we did a compilation video of the lowlights of Paul Tierney alone it'd be a three-part fucking two-hour documentary he does it every week he cannot stop himself from doing it and this is where it starts to look like bias it's like yeah. you had the exact almost again like you can you can you you can look at the the, the, the two the, the, the two incidents with Curtis Jones and then um, Clivert and like just just separately. Uh, yeah. yeah. However, that's you can you can say yes. I don't feel that Curtis Jones should have been a, a red card. Okay, fine. Then that's then at least it should have been a yellow card for Clivert. But if you're going to get a red card and that's what you set up as being your baseline for for the the Jones tackle, like. They're, they're not identical per se, but it's the same. It's the, it's the, it's almost what do they say? Force and intent. Is that what it is? Or yeah. Well, yeah. there's a bigger issue, which is just very straightforward, which is you can't freaking go over the ball. That's it. Yeah. Over the ball is a red card. It always has been. It always should be, and it always will be, except when you have complete morons refereeing games. Can I interject one thing? Yeah. Because the Cliver one. The ball is three feet away by the time he does what he does. Yeah. So it's like, it, it isn't over the ball because the ball isn't there. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it still is going over the top is more what I, is. but like the other thing that I want to bring up here is I think that it's incompetence in nearly every case. It is not incompetence in the case of Paul Tierney. This is a personal score to settle. He shouldn't be given Liverpool games. By the way, He's refing Liverpool, Chelsea, and Leeds next week. Yep. And John Brooks, who I mentioned earlier, is on VAR. John Brooks is just an incompetent shithead. He's so since <laughs> since Klopp had a rant at him, apparently he's given Liverpool no big chances. He's, you know that thing that Tompkins does around what big chances should top four, top six teams get. He'd given Liverpool none. He, in fact, it, in the, the end of that season, uh, where Gakpo got kicked in the chest by. The Aston Villa defender who Mings um, and, yeah. and only got a yellow card. Uh, that's a great example of the kind of refereeing we've had from Brooks since then. Yeah, I don't think he's a good referee. I just think that he might be completely and totally universally inept. I also don't know a big enough body of his work to to sit there and say this. I think the only the only two refs that don't like send a sh send like just like a great feeling of distress to me when they have to make a decision. Or Michael Oliver and to an extent Chris Kavanaugh. And even then, that's that's very faint praise because Michael Oliver's um only good by comparison. He's not good in absolute terms. He yeah. was also the referee for the when Virgil van Dyke got, got his leg sawed off against Pickford. 
Or that was Coop. Coop was on VAR, though. Yeah, that's more of a David Coop mistake. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the one, the one thing about VAR is like it's 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 basically putting in the stark light of day what we've known for for pretty much our entire football watching careers. Like these referees are at best inept and at worst biased. And like it's and it's and it's now beyond the shadow of a doubt that you consistently get this wrong. And it feels like to me, I watch a little bit of German football every now and again. They seem to get it right way more than they get it wrong. Whereas it's the exact opposite in the Premier League, which and again, as people have said, is like if this if you're trying to push push this as being the crown jewel of international football, world world club football, this this diminishes from your product. Yeah, it, it's it's farcical. For 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 Howard Webb to say is like, look, it's clear. It's beyond the shadow of a doubt that Paul Tierney does not care for Liverpool Football Club, period. And he's allowing, it's like it's putting, it's like putting a kid in the room with a bully and telling them to sort it out and leaving them alone and doing it time and time and time again. Yeah. When it's clear that they're never going to work it out. I mean, this time it'll be different is the mantra of an idiot. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I think with Daz's point, right? Like, oh, lessons have been learned. Yeah, well, well, it'll be different next. They time. haven't been. Like, it's of course not. Whenever, if if your answer to something is this time it'll be different, it's never different. Never will be. None of the broadcasters are interested in that conversation. Like NBC uh, Sports have not mentioned the the two the web decisions. They barely mentioned the web decisions. They certainly haven't talked about the Odegaard one. Uh, because they don't want they don't want to taint the product. And I'm assuming that web coming out on UK TV makes them think somehow that'll placate like our uh, our UK audience because no one else in the rest of the world is actually getting access to that unless they go seek it out. I mean, the guy who's in charge of the referees is a cop from the South Yorkshire Police Department. Like, yeah, yeah. perhaps there's certain bodies that could be associated with that. Um, I'm not even trying to like make this like a, a conspiracy because it's not, but just like there are certain bodies that, you know, have done a better job of actually holding themselves to account in that particular outfit. Yeah. And they should not be, I, I, I don't think that, you know, someone associated with that outfit should be, um, should be given that much power towards football, considering the fact that, you know, South Shore, Yorkshire police department have been pretty indifferent to, football supporters and this is a, a different way of doing that yeah i think i think the other thing is like if, if i grew up in liverpool if i'd never traveled anywhere then i i might well like have un like unbalanced animosity towards manchester for reasons i may not even understand uh having lived there and having traveled to different places you know i i, I don't assume that everyone from manchester is is somehow a bad person but I don't know how cosmopolitan any of these Manchester referees are because I could imagine they don't have a very good view of, of people from Liverpool. I'm sure they're especially pissed off this week. The Time Out magazine named Liverpool as the seventh most desirable city in the world to visit, uh, which I'm pretty sure Manchester wasn't even on that list. Just it was actually as, ranked 11th. Manchester what? was on the list. It was 11th? It was ranked, oh, ranked okay, well, now I'm doubting the rankings. Yeah. Well, if I can say this, Anthony Taylor's probably pretty universally reviled because I know that people from Rome despise him too. People who are no longer in Rome despise him too. But um, so Taylor, interestingly, I don't think is 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 quite the same. Um, he like apparently Chelsea fans think he's biased against them. I think he makes a lot of bad calls. 
he has that whole thing about letting the play go, which usually hurts us because we don't want the play to be let go in a kind of very physical way. Um, but so so Tonkins is very clear that Taylor is is on balance, sort of okay. Um, it's it's really a problem is Tierney, Coote, and uh, of late uh, John Brooks. So here's my thing about the subject subjectivity to subjectivity thing. I thought about this as I was driving home today. It's subjectivity is fine as as long as there's a, as a certain level of of consistency throughout. So uh, and I, I I always mention this about Tierney because it happened in the Spurs game. Like there was the subjectivity was became objective almost because of the way that he applied the subjectivity across two almost identical incidents the Kane tackle and then the Robert the Andy Robertson tackle one of which resulted in a red card the other one resulted in a, and I think it was just a yellow right even just a yeah. yellow yeah so if you're going to be like subjectively subjective about particular calls and Taylor does this as well which is and then we talk about this all the time Paul is like he'll let something go to benefit the other team but he won't let it go for to benefit us and it like you'll see like it's these small like these death of a thousand cuts. It's like he just gave a yellow card for that exact that exact yeah. offense in the same game ten minutes ago for one of our guys, one of the guys we we're playing against. For the exact same tackle, nothing happens. He lets the play go on, and he doesn't come back and call the guy afterwards either. Like it's it's, it's like this. Like I'm okay with subjectivity. Like you, you're right. You don't want to turn it into an like an automaton with with someone that's just about like common sense should be allowed to prevail, but Common sense is common, like it's it's called common sense for a reason, and they just they, the adjudication doesn't use common sense, like judiciously, I guess, I guess, for the lack of a better way of putting it. And it's, it's and it, it just angers me. It's like just keep it consistent. The subject subjectivity is it possible for am I am I out of out of out of my mind? No mind here about subjectivity. Like you no, can, you're not. You're not. I mean, ultimately, look, subjectivity and a human element to refereeing is a thing that I, I accept a certain level of human errors involved in this particular game. I actually think that's one of the things about it that um, I think is necessary. I think that that's part of the part of the beauty of some sports is human error in officiating. It just can't be egregious and it can't be biased. Yeah. Like, if you see a guy clearly doesn't make contact on a foul in the box, that's not an error. That's a mistake. I mean, that's not, that's not a, that's not a, that's not a, a, a difference in judgment. That's a, that's just a mistake. Like differences in judgment. I'm willing to live with mistakes less. So. Yeah. So we could go on and on, especially about teeny. I'm sure. Um, but I, I think the one thing that's going to have to happen the rest of the season is whoever the referee is, we just need to be better than them and better than, the team were playing uh you know to your point uh Daz, it, taylor was the referee in the newcastle game and there was 15 minutes at the end of the first half where i think liverpool's players had lost it around some of the bizarre decisions he was making um i, I thought well next wednesday obviously will be a test with tierney where we know there's going to be something weird uh anyway good process lads let's move on um let's talk a bit about uh, ownership um PNSR obviously Forrest and Everton have been charged with um breaking the rules uh and <laughs> I mean it, it it's funny really you know a team that signs 45 players uh, this is Forrest not Chelsea um like having a problem with uh, uh kind of managing their books because they didn't sell what player in time 
And Everton, I have no idea whether this is basically the same charge again. It just carries over to another season. But it feels like they broke the rules. Um, I believe it is. Yeah. And the thing, the thing that I really wanted to dwell on here is that there's a narrative which is really strong, which is that, that all these teams have been held back from, well, I would argue they're held back from inflating the transfer market um, by pumping in ridiculous amounts of money. But actually, um, the, the argument is they're being held back from growing and becoming a bigger club and you know potentially going out of business if you're Everton. Because um, Everton's problems are far beyond like the peer and SR stuff. Everton's problems is cash flow um, at this point and the ability to complete their stadium. Um, feels like the narrative needs to be balanced and balanced towards one which says, actually, FSG have done a remarkably good job in this context. And the, the and I think, again, with a set of rules they thought should have been implemented 10 years ago. I think I would agree with that. Mm. Um, I think in the case of Everton, it's um, a, a slightly different version of what happened in, that to, uh, than to what happened in Nottingham Forest because the reality is Everton's books and everything are crap because of the criminality of uh, Alisher Uzmanov, right? That's a piece of it, yep, yep. City, I mean, not Nottingham Forest is because I think that they're, I, I believe that their owner is using the transfer market for money laundering. He is not alone. Like, this is one of the things, like, this is this is, this is the, the evil that you've invited, this is the evil you invite into the game when you allow for unchecked amounts of money to come into it right which is if if you get if you create an opaque market with no actual rules money launderers use it right it's how that that's how that works um in particular when it comes to products that people love like football like um it's you know it's easy to it's easy to grow receipts when you know that basically and, and to trade around all that money even though some of that money is really is fake and not real um, because it's just, you know, moving something from one side of an, from one side of a ledger to another. Um, you're really just, you know, th there's, there's plenty of opportunity to commit fraud. And I think that's really what this is. I don't think that the teams really have a leg to stand on. I don't think that this is about prevent. I understand the arguments that teams are making about um, the top six being a cartel. Because I really do understand it. I don't think that necessarily like FFP is the best answer for how you institute a um, financial rule that entails parity. But the thing is, FFP wasn't about parity. It's about ensuring, com ensuring community assets don't go out. Like FFP is to FFP exists to try to prevent things like Sunderland falling through two leagues or bury having to shut their doors it doesn't exist to ensure parity right so yeah. the idea that anybody thinks it does and that that's the standard that people are holding the regulation to is simply incorrect um my, my friend and very good football uh finance writer dave powell has a belief in this that i agree with which is in reality we should all be encouraging less money to be spent on the transfer market yeah like let the game, the team, the game should be about more using your local academy and having and trying to bring youth through and not being able to just come in and buy things, right? 
um, the, the idea that the, the, the way that you're going to get teams to actually be better able to compete and a wider range of teams to compete is actually by reducing player acquisition costs and player development costs by getting players younger, getting them closer, getting them attached, you know, to, um, you know, their home area teams or have the ability to transfer to different teams for different opportunities younger. But that's one of the things that I like that Liverpool has done has been targeting getting younger players earlier and trying to develop them on your own rather than paying someone else to do the development for you. And the transfer market isn't going to go away. There is still the need to buy players from outside. The approach can't just be only development through the academy. But the answer is if you want to fix the sport and you want to fix the money around the sport is that you actually need to do both. You need to develop players through academies. You need to make that an encouraged way of doing things and you need to also, and you need to basically reduce the amount of money that goes into the transfer market. This is something deeply refreshing, I think, about this transfer window. And apart from the fact that we haven't heard much from David Ornstein, which has been awesome, um, <laughs> that, that all these teams like want to whine about like not being able to spend money or like having to figure it out uh, in terms of like, okay, how do we like Newcastle? Like, do we need to sell somebody to buy? It's like, oh, what a novel concept that is, right? Uh, or, or, or except in Chelsea's case where it's like, do we need to sell another youth team player to book all that profit now to cover our... You know, the, I really do want them to fail. So want them to fail. Go ahead. That was, was, was going to be my... That's, you, you, that's hand in glove to what I was going to ask Justin. Is like that, that, that youth development tip, hasn't that already been somewhat perverted by the likes of Chelsea? Yeah. So it's like... So I think it looks... What looks good philosophically oftentimes on paper is going to get corrupted. But um, I think philosophically there's another thing you can look at where you've actually seen a good version of it. And I'll, and I'll give you that good version of it. Well, that's... Darrell Kwanzaa, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Curtis Jones, buying Harvey Elliott at 16 and bringing him through your academy, which granted we paid a lot more for Harvey Elliott than you typically would for most youth products, but it's still, I think, around 7 million pounds. Connor Bradley, right? Like... These are players who we invested in. Stefan Basetic, right? That to me is that to me is a, a sign of a, you know actually using the youth using youth markets to develop players rather than simply stockpiling young players so that they can't have careers elsewhere. Okay, well let me ask you this then: if, if you wanted to make it truly a, a, a like a, that type of experience. Do you not then like curtail the number of young talent that a larger team like Liverpool or a Manchester City or a Chelsea can go and plunder from some of these teams that are quote unquote trying to bring develop develop their teams by bringing yeah. in their young players? Absolutely, absolutely, I would. I would basically try to limit the amount of young players you can bring in who aren't from some yeah. sort of area that's close to you. Yeah, well, that is that is true up to a certain age, right? Liverpool can only recruit, I think, under sixteens from kind of ninety miles within Liverpool. But but what they've done actually is recruit a whole load of 16, 17 year olds. Like they've got Bobby, they've got Bobby Clark from Newcastle, um, the young guy from Leicester whose name I can't remember, who apparently starred Trey, in the Trey, Trey and Yoni. The, the, that's him. The, the, the starred in the seven one win in the Youth Cup against Arsenal, who were in the final last year. Um, and I think okay, Gordon's in this category, right? Ben Doak. Um, so the, the, the maybe, so it says to me, by comparison though, 
though us stealing those players, if that's what you want to call it, feels way uh feels like a, a lesser problem than like what Chelsea are trying to do, which is like sell all their academy players for like profits and then bring in all these people. I mean, I, I, again, I, I just so badly want them to fail because um, that does not feel like a way you should be running football and driving up the price of, of, of cost of players, uh, which is what would happen, right? If we had a free-for-all, no FFP, you know, Man City and Newcastle would be free to, you know, they wouldn't have to like, like hide their expenditures. They could just buy whoever they wanted. Um, everyone else would be in the dust. You know what it is that I that, that I'd like to see corrected is basically, and this goes back to the entire thing with Chelsea. Footballers are human beings. You don't want to see them treated as assets. This is the thing I hate about modern sports. Because I mean, you know, I watch the NBA quite a bit, as I've mentioned a million times, and I already have once on this podcast. But like, what you know, the team I'm, I root for is you're going to try to make a trade for a star at some a, a superstar at some point in the next year or two. And everybody talks about the assets they've compiled, right? to do this. And I hate thinking about human beings as assets. It's dehumanizing and it's it, it it conjures up certain things to me when you actually talk about a human being being used for some sort of physical labor as an asset. Like I I don't like it. It it sickens me, it grosses me out. So like, you know, I like seeing when you're going to buy a young player that you're buying a young player because you have a plan on how you want to develop this young player and develop their talent. I don't really want to think about them as some sort of line in a ledger because to me, that's just, it's gross. Yeah, yeah. But it's very, very Chelsea right now. Boldy doesn't own an NBA team, does he? <laughs> he owns, yeah. he's, he's part owner of a, a, of a baseball team. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, that baseball team had a spreadsheet um, in their front office that's mildly famous that was just called crimes.xls. <laughs> I'm not making that up. I know. That's why I'm laughing. It's okay. Funny. All right. All right. Well, Paul, just, just back to your point about like Everton and, and, and the, the furor around that. It's, what's the old adage amongst lawyers? Like, if you don't have facts on your side, you if you have facts on your side, you pound the facts. If you don't have, if you have the law on your side, you, you pound the law. If you have neither facts nor the law, you pound the table. I think that's exactly what's happening here. It's like yeah. it's table pounding. Like, well, what about those guys? And the what about is like the fact is they, they Everton was they tried to help Everton. Yeah. Like, look, this is your way out of this. Do this, and they didn't do that. And now they're saying it's like pretty poor us. It's like no, mate. Like you had every opportunity to to right the ship, and we gave you that opportunity, and you did not. Well, you can't get us with the same thing again. Yes, we can, and we will. For the same reasons we got you the first time. Like, we gave you the opportunity to do it. And, like, Sheffield, can they feel aggrieved? Like, we all saw them amassing, like, 50, 52 players. They ran out of space in their, in their, in their changing room. Well, that was Chelsea, yeah, but it yeah. felt like they did. And Steve Cooper was expected to throw as many of these guys together as he could in a very short period of time. That, well, that's different. That's operational. But in terms of, like, what they they, they, they fell afoul of it. And it's, well, you now, now you decided to, to use the law. Yeah. We did. And sorry, like you just happened to be caught in it. And there's every chance that eventually Man City is going to, something will happen to Man City. We don't, we can't, I don't have a crystal ball. So I do think, I do think that the, the argument that like, we're petty criminals, like why pick on us? There's like organized crime going on in a couple of other places. Carry some weight with me. You know? uh, 
It should, but both things can exist in the same place at the same time. They they can, but it's so much easier to prosecute petty criminals, right, than it is to to deal with organized crime. Um, <clears throat> cheats. Anyway, uh, let's say a word or two about Afcon. Um, Mo Salah. Uh, I I I wrote. Who knows what the story is? Well, actually, I think the story has become a bit clearer um, today. Pep Pep Linders said uh, his his hamstring has a proper tear, and I don't know Dutch and whether. The, that means it's what grade of tear it, of hamstring tear it is, but it sounds like he could be out for up to twenty eight days, uh, and 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 who knows? I, I noticed that Tyler Adams was in the stands at the Bournemouth game, and and his hamstring injury has kept him out for what six months. It's been a long time, so mm, so I guess it could be bad. Um, so let's let's, let's touch quickly on 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 Mosala thoughts, um, any insights, Justin? No, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, only wasn't it so about the grade of tear. It was more about like the fact that Klopp had said. But Klopp was asked the question. He's like, "Is he coming back?" And he's like, "I think so." Uh, uh, apparently, e Egypt's coach was pissed off about this. Uh, apparently, the FA, which Egyptian FA under Simon Hughes, may not be the most uh, independent uh, football association in the world. Uh, Look. Like Egypt Egypt has certain issues with with treating star footballers well. Um, I think it's what's Abu Trika. It doesn't have a particularly good um, relationship and image with the government. He's, you know, Salah before Salah was Salah, just to a uh, much lesser degree. Yeah. Um, I think that basically there's always going to be some sort of both heroism and backlash towards Mo Salah because of, you know, like, one of the most famous people to ever come out of, to, to come out of the, the modern history of Egypt. Right. Um, you know, I, I could think of some very famous modern Egyptians and Mo Salah is both probably the most famous and loved. Um, and, you know, he, he, he ultimately carries a huge burden because of that. And he, there's there's no decision he can make that's going to satisfy everybody because there's just too many people who have thoughts on what Mo Salah should do. So I'm actually going to do something that uh, I wish more people would do in certain situations. I'm not going to offer an opinion. I just I just want him to get healthy, yeah, and feel like he's able to do what he wants to. Uh, I think Sometimes too many people. I think too many people put their own desires of what their stars do onto them rather than actually wanting people to, ha uh, you know, famous people who who don't owe them anything. They feel like they owe them something. Mo Salah owes me nothing. He's already given me more than I ever possibly could have asked for, and I didn't even ask him for that. So, so, I, so I confess, I was a bit disturbed to see him at the game yesterday after what Klopp had said. And then, then he was, like, walking all around the pitch and, like, like somebody should put him in a cryogenic chamber. Let's, let's not have him there. Um, but it, it, it was a quite an exciting match. And I'll go to you, Daz, because I know you've watched a few of these games. Um, this tournament seems at a level above any other AFCON I've ever watched. Uh, most of them have seemed to me to be like, like, like the dour defensive would be a label you could put on most of the teams. Not this time. Like the number of... 
I can't think of a winning goal in the 90th minute, but I can think of lots and lots of tying goals in the 90 plus minute in this tournament. It's felt it's felt uh, worthy of the watch, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, some of the teams who've like played really well, like Cape Verde, um, was it Angola today? Did I get that right? Um, it's 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 been it's been pretty watchable. Well, Cameroon are doing as well. Uh, Ivory Coast. It's I, I I I hasten to say it's it's like a changing of the guard. But one thing I will say is I mean some very very high profile uh, uh, goalkeeping errors that have resulted in like Ghana. Um, who else am I thinking of? Well, there's Anana. Like he's I don't even know why he went. Is but it's 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 been it's been it's been fun to follow along. Because like you look at like Tunisia and Algeria, they're both bottom of their groups. Um, wow. If you had said that beforehand, uh, I would have, I would have, I would have laughed in your face. But it's 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 it's, it's refreshing, I think, and it's nice that like that people are taking a, a bigger interest in it. Because like you said, the last Afcon, I think I guarantee viewership is much much higher this one for this one than it was in, in previous ones, and and it hasn't disappointed. Like there's been thrills, there's been spills, there's been like a lot of drama. Um, one one thing I will say is like I, I, it's kind of a little bit distressing that people jumped on Mo that quickly for for a decision that may or may not have been made. Considering like you you watch him on the sidelines, he bleeds he bleeds for that team, he bleeds for his country. Like he he desperately, I remember him coming back from losing that final. Yeah, um, he was. It, it took him a while to recover, like mentally. Yeah. I think. like we didn't see the best of him for quite a while after that. So yeah. you know that it, it bothered him. And for and and what he does for his country in terms of like what he gives back, it's uh, it was a, 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 it saddened me more than anything else. Yeah. It's just that that they would round on him that that quickly. I I love the moment where the goal had been disallowed that would have made it two one. They thought it was going to guarantee them a place, and he's on his phone looking at it, and he's pointing out to people that the, the guy didn't handball it. Uh, <laughs> I, I I thought that was so like. Oh, that's the kind of thing we might do. It was lovely. Exactly. One of us. One of us. Yeah. Okay. Let's. Uh, let's. Let's. We, we, we might give more time to Afcon as as it goes forward. Um. We'll certainly give more time to Mo Salah. No question about that. Let's end part two there, and we'll be back probably with a pretty pretty brief forward look. Hey, welcome back to part three of First Day Copites. In this segment, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. One is um, we're going to get back to the Reds from those other big topics that sometimes make us feel angry. Uh, we'll talk about kind of, I think, progress this season, um, things we've seen that um, we can feel good about and maybe anything that, that's a concern. Uh, and then we'll just touch briefly on the games. Uh, say we play Fulham tomorrow. We've got Norwich at home on Sunday. Um, cue Luis Suarez jokes. Uh, we play next week, or in eight days' time, play Chelsea at home. Uh, we mentioned Paul Tini is refereeing that game. <clears throat> uh, and then finally, Arsenal, uh, Sunday, February 4th. Um, let's, we'll talk briefly about their set pieces that apparently they spent two weeks in Dubai practicing, um, which is obviously what you need to beat a very difficult Crystal Palace team. Not so much. Um, okay. Some of the patterns, uh, I think some some of this is about the narrative about this team. I think on Sunday, Lasso and his co the commentator said that, ah, oh, they've been really effective without being like very 
splashy. Uh, and I, th I think part of that is that we've had a lot of first halves that people might describe as slow. Uh, apparently, we are like fourth or fifth in the league. The teams have been in the lead at halftime. And I think it's seven of 21. Um, but we have scored the most second half goals, including 19 goals in the last 15 minutes. And I can't remember what the numbers are, but it's the most goals by subs in uh, of, of, of any team in the Premier League, which sounds like a good place to be, doesn't it? It does. Uh, we said very early on that uh, Klopp 2.0 is 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 kind of Klopp's Klopp's uh, well, it wasn't necessarily a steep learning curve, but he's learned from his mistakes. Um, I know he was a big a big advocate for the five subs and the teams that weren't is because they didn't have as deep of a bench and they knew that that was going to come back to bite them eventually. And we said very early on that him utilizing these subs for for significant periods of time was going to keep them all fresh. They start to develop in match chemistry, and you can see that that is that that's now very much starting starting to happen. And the changes that he makes are, by and large, have been of all been influential in the way that the match has turned out. And the fact that the subs are scoring, and the fact that these are late late game uh, late goals, which are testament to that, we're having fresh legs. We we are moving things around, not just pieces, but the formations of those pieces. Is 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 bearing is bearing the types of fruit that that we that we talked about at the begin at the beginning of the season, and I think this will stand because like a lot of guys are coming back from from injury now as well, so that was always going to stand us in good stead as long as he could stick to the plan and he stuck to the plan and and those patterns that that, that you just that you just alluded to and mentioned are are, are seem to be the evidence of of those those what did you say the chickens coming home to roost. In a good way, right? Because usually that means bad things are happening if chickens yeah, are coming. Yeah, it means that you, you've been foisted upon your own petard. Would you rather finish something strongly or start it strongly? I'd rather finish something strongly. Typically, that means that the end result is probably going in your favor. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've mentioned this several times, but I really think our subs and, and you know, if we can get Salah back and everyone else stays healthy, um, they're like a cheat code. I, I don't know anyone else who could do this. I mean, Chelsea would like to because they've got obviously a million people to introduce. But the effect that bringing on Gakpo, Nunez, Diaz, Jota, depending on the game, is 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 pretty amazing. Um, the the other thing I, I, I do want to touch on, um, Justin, is uh, <laughs> the Guardian Football Weekly, which is a show I occasionally listen to because uh, it has like Jonathan Wilson on for starters, who I think is always well worth a listen. But um, I would say that. Barry Glendenning, the sidekick to uh, Max Rushton, who's the main host, really doesn't like Liverpool. And it was so funny this week, uh, like someone had written in a question and said, will the panel now decide that Liverpool's defence is not as bad as, as it was and it's not going to cost them the league? And Glendenning disingenuously said, I don't know where this came from. Who's talking about this? And it's like, I'm pretty sure you could clip stuff that he said three months ago about Liverpool's defence being not up to it and uh, needing, uh, yeah, Liverpool need a miracle because the defence is not very good. Um, the defence is actually uh, based on the last 10 games and that XG against we talked about, quietly pretty formidable. We have Virgil van Dijk and Alisson Becker and Ivo Kanate and you don't. I mean, yeah. basically it just took the midfield gelling and actually having a unit that knows how to stop runners. And, you know, yeah. I think Glenn Denning's been hoisted on his own petard. 
Yeah, <laughs> very good. <laughs> well, except he hasn't because he denies he ever sent it anyway. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the guy, the guy. I don't know what it is about him. He really does like to talk Liverpool down. Um, yeah, he he was only too willing to jump on the bandwagon of like three months ago of when Jonathan Wilson said all of the title challenges are, are, are flawed. And somehow the Guardian headline was Liverpool are flawed in their title challenge. <laughs> and that's what he jumped on. Um, yeah. I mean, isn't every title challenge flawed unless you win? <laughs> what it is. Even if you win, it's like, like perfect is not a thing. Confirmation bias until it's not is what I was trying to say there. Big picture. Um, w even without Salah, uh, without Sobersly, without Trent Alexander-Arnold, there's been a lot to be impressed by, by this team. So how's it going to look then in the next um, two weeks? Uh, like Fulham away tomorrow. Andy Robertson's available, uh, apparently. Um, so so I, I'm recalling two years ago, we drew nil with Arsenal at Anfield. Arsenal celebrated wildly. And then Diogo Jota scored a couple of goals at uh, the Emirates and we were through. Uh, are we thinking that might be the narrative? Is there, is there something we should be concerned about with Fulham? No, because there was no image of Ben White sitting there and, uh, you know, laughing at everything and then being hoisted on his own petard about two weeks later. Ben 10. Oh, of anyone who's been hoisted on their own petard, Ben White is is the guy. He's been a running theme of our uh, last few weeks' conversations. Uh, looking forward to playing him again because I don't really think he's that good. No, but I mean, we should beat Fulham. But to be perfectly honest... If this is the dullest nil-nil draw ever where nothing happens, fine. Don't care. Yeah, um, yeah. Just don't lose. Daz, thoughts, thoughts about lineup. Uh, James Pierce, who we've often <clears throat> commented on, um, says Liverpool are going to go really strong against Fulham. And usually I'd be like, oh, that can't be right. But Jurgen Klopp has gone strong in a lot of games this season already that I didn't think he would. Uh, I think there's a couple of factors that play into it. The fact that the guys have had a significant period of time off, which they have, which so there's there's rest and recuperation there. The fact that it's also a the second leg of a of, of a competition that if you win or manage to pull a, a favorable result from, you're going to Wembley, and yeah. plays Norwich this weekend with three days off as well. So I think yeah. I think it. I wouldn't. I'd, I'd be surprised if I see Allison start though. But no, I think Kelleher's competition. What's that? This is Kelleher's competition. Yeah. Yeah. But so I think that that you're starting from the back. You'll start with Kelleher. Um, I don't think you'll see Andy Robertson unless we're ahead by a decent margin with about 30, 25, 30 minutes to go. Get him some minutes and then give him an hour on over the weekend if just to just to just to kind of ease him back in because Chelsea's a big one and he's going to need minutes. But I think it, I think it'll be more of the same. You'll probably see Connor Bradley at, at, at right back. You'll probably see some combination of uh, Ibu uh, and and uh, uh, Verge, or uh, maybe Kwanzaa will come in for that. Uh, wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see Joe Gomez. Uh, honestly, I don't I don't I, I don't think we have a weakened version of a midfield. Like you could you could have a there's a, a Bobby Clark shot for one of the positions maybe, but uh, on play on the right and then play. Because apparently Curtis Jones isn't is is well enough to is fit enough to play. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. It, it, I I have I have to disagree. I think he goes strong as possible, and if you're giving a kid a chance, 
It's on Sunday against Norwich. Fair enough. Yeah, true. But I'm saying is like if he wants some sort of diddle, I think I I think that he that, that's that's probably what he'll do. He's not gonna he's not gonna put a bunch of he won't start with the team that he finished off, like that he finished off with against against Bournemouth. It'll be probably be close to the team that he started it with. Yeah. My my shout here is that um, he's going to look at the team he needs to play Chelsea, and he th- needs to play Arsenal, and then he works back from there. Um, and there's three days between uh, playing Fulham, so three full days, which is kind of what he likes uh, before they play Norwich. So I, I think he can see this as a game on its own, um, but I, I, I think he'll be influenced by is this going to impact who's available, especially in the like the front three. Um, for the Arsenal game, sorry, for the Chelsea game, and then the Arsenal game. Um, so we're thinking Fulham low key draw, go strong, we, wins it early. I think we beat. I think we're going to beat Fulham. I don't care what we do against Norwich. Legitimately, don't. Um, yeah. Get to a final. I won't care if we drop out of the FA Cup. If we're in a final with that, that with two cups that I basically place at the similar level of prestige at this point the fa cups shorn of its prestige so the biggest thing about the league cup is if they won it then it would tick over to 10 wins i feel like that's in the season where the you know they're in the with a shout of winning the 20th league title they, they feel like significant numbers to me uh that's the biggest thing about the league cup i don't know if klopp even cares about that um but i, I think strong against fulham is a shout. Fulham, I think you. I think you can rotate guys against Norwich, and I think you're going to have to, with the with an eye on getting your strongest team for that you can to play against uh, Paul Tierney and the Chelsea Football Club. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I think I think that's really kind of what it is. I mean, I think with Fulham, it's just you know, to steal a quote from a movie. We we shouldn't make a we shouldn't make a wager with a Sicilian with death on the line. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's you're going strong and and to be perfectly honest, like whatever happens against, happens against Norwich, the important thing that happened in the FA Cup was taking Arsenal out at their own patch. Yeah, mm-hmm. because that's going to give us a big psychological advantage going into Feb fourth. If we can get past Chelsea, who I still don't think are very good. Um, but you never know because it's ch- whenever Chelsea play Liverpool, um, they manage to create the most boring game known to mankind. Um, if we yeah. can get past that, I'll feel very good. Yeah, I, I I feel like there's a bit of a wild card thing with with Chelsea because you're kind of not quite sure who's going to show up. But I think if we have our best foot forward, there's other things to consider for this game a game as well, and we just touched upon it is like his use of subs. I think that he uses his subs as, as like the, the, some of the so the bigger guys that come on later on. It's like he uses it as a, as a glorified training exercise for them. So he keeps he keeps them fresh. He keeps them in the rhythm. Yeah. So I, that, that's what I was saying is like I, I don't think it really matters. We can still go strong, but like there's different levels of strength, and then he can strengthen he can strengthen accordingly with those with that last 15, 20, 30 minutes to go. So yeah. So yeah. so what I'm hearing is Norwich at home, Europa League type lineup. Uh, Championship side traveling a long way to Anfield on a on a, on a Sunday in an FA Cup weekend. Uh, yeah. I, I I feel like that's one where you'll get some kids who might step up and show you something. Um, yeah. I feel like you also though might use that game to get 
Alexander, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Dominic Sabazlai some run. They're going to need some minutes. Robertson's going to need some minutes. Like it's a combination of maybe you get some youth players, some starting experience, and also you're going to start getting some of your firepower back and you need to get them minutes. Mm -hmm. I am a little wary of just making sure that Curtis Jones isn't hurt. Like play, I, I would tread lightly on Curtis because I think we really need him for both the Arsenal and Chelsea games. Yeah. So, so scrap out a win against Fulham or kind of Norwich. Definitely don't get a replay. That's I think that's the one thing which, uh, given how February is playing out, we'd, we'd have a lot of time on the training field um, if we don't have to do a replay in Norwich, which is not a place you want to go because um, it's a long way away. Um, uh, but then be really set up for Chelsea. And and then the nice thing about the Chelsea-Arsenal combination is we have Thursday, Friday, three days again off um, between those games, which I think allows a bit more thought about. Um, I do think, I honestly think if we if we're able to get, so, so we've beaten Chelsea and Arsenal. What, what do you think the, the probability of that is? I think we take the points from Chelsea. I think we share them with Arsenal. Okay. I think we're taking all six of those points. I feel very confident at this point. The thing I think we have to watch out for, and I mentioned this earlier, is like they spent two weeks on set pieces, just have to stop them scoring on set pieces because apparently I think they've scored now, I don't know, 70% of their goals from set pieces. I think there was someone on one of the podcasts I heard said like they have two ways of scoring. One is the score on the break when they're leading towards the end of the game or get a goal from set piece. And they don't do the first if the second if the second hasn't happened. Yeah, you know, there's one. Maybe this is the last thing I'll say on this podcast about the Arsenal game. I fucking hate Mikel Arteta. <laughs> Get no arguments from me. He's a clockback. He's a pep acolyte. Yeah. He has a lot of the some similar qualities, like the 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 rampant disingenuousness. Yeah. Well, not the hairline, that's for sure. That, that's that's uniquely that's uniquely his Lego headedness. Well, I've seen some bald Legos. Um, that's true. The, so, so I think the final thing to say about him: the salt bay shit. I mean, uh, how weird was that? I mean, two very weird people. Okay, maybe I will say. Maybe I will say one other thing. Okay. Right. <laughs> salt bay is just. It just seems like such a such a dumb, overrated experience for. A steak that, you know, like, it really can't be that good. I'm sorry. Like, I, I love steak. I like eating it. But I, I, if you're a chef worth a damn, like, you're making your bones on cooking other things besides steak. Like, steak's great. There's a lot of good chefs who make a great steak who love making a great steak. But come on. Show me something that I can't do myself. So I think we should probably end there. Let's hope Salt Bay is the same fraudulent uh, behavior as we'll see from Mikel Arteta in the next, uh, well, in, in on February 4th. Uh, one thing I would say is, uh, don't tell anyone this, but Neil Atkinson was talking about how his birthday weekend is usually shit because we don't win on his birthday weekend. We did. This is my birthday weekend. End it there. Um, we will likely be back after the Chelsea game. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Daz. So great to see you. Uh, and thank you, dear listener, for joining us. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend. Follow us at First Day Copites on Twitter. We only tweet and retweet from sources we think are credible. Finally, music is courtesy of Hypnotic. They're a Welsh electro pop band, and you can find them at https colon forward slash forward slash hyperfollow.com forward slash hypnotic. Hypnotic is H Y P E N O T I C. Thanks so much to them.
Yeah, my take on it, and I'm going to have a very similar kind of take for the second half. My take on the first half is we have Virgil van Dyke and you don't. That's really it. Yeah, and like Van Dyke wasn't the only guy who was good in a defensive capacity or a pressure relieving capacity because like Ibu was fantastic. And uh, there's not enough positive things that one can say about Alessis McAllister in the first half. Just like constantly took the ball out of pressure, constantly uh, tackled, constantly just broke everything up, made a, you know, got us going forward. This is the type of thing where it's just like we had a first half where we couldn't, you know, find our range, but still in reality was like, we have Virgil van Dyke and Allison Becker. I missed Allison and they don't, and you don't, right? Like even if you get a little bit of uh superiority and to be perfectly honest, if you're, if you're counting five minutes for a team that's home with a team that hasn't, that hasn't played in 11 games as superiority, I think you're really just trying too hard to make uh, the Liverpool are fortunate narrative happen.
that was going to be my my story. The second half is that we have Diogo Jota and you do. Yeah, we have Diogo Jota and you don't. I mean, look, I, I know that um, I occasionally can possibly be accused of doing of doing Diogo Jota um, agitprop, uh, but I, I love him. But like, what you have to get used to and what you have to realize with Jota is that like. People have certain aesthetic requirements of attackers. And if you have certain aesthetic requirements of attackers, Diogo Jota is not going to satisfy them. 